Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Here you go. Here you go. True. So true. Funny how it seems. Spandau Ballet, is that the word of the day? It's just true is your nothing personal word of the day. Here on a Monday, why is that? It's because of Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn is the coach of the Atlanta Falcons, and he gave an injury report for Julio Jones. And he said, quote, he is a true game-time decision. I loved that honesty from Coach Quinn, though he's on his last legs. The reason he is is that he's not a good coach and his team stinks. But the fact is that teams use the injured list and the injury report as a way to manipulate players and information for other teams. But there's issues with gambling, so NFL's cracking down on it. And Dan Quinn basically said what every team does, except no one would ever admit, that a game-time decision, never. We always know what we're doing with our players. But for it to be a true game-time decision, you're a winner, Dan Quinn. Yes, you are. Josh Shaw got suspended. That's not breaking news. Arizona Cardinals, not breaking news. What is breaking news to me is what Josh Shaw said after he got suspended for gambling. He became only the fourth player in NFL history to be suspended for betting on football. You've heard of Arch Schleister. You've heard of Paul Horning. Have you heard of Alex Karras from Webster? Well, now Josh Shaw joins that list. But why is this worthy of a conversation right now? Because he came up with a Hall of Fame excuse. This is something that I want to explain how it works. You've got Josh Shaw with his agent, with his lawyer. They're sitting around saying, I just got caught gambling on football. I've been suspended. What shall I say? Well, there's three options I would tell him. One, take it like a man. Say, yes, I made a mistake. I will pay the penalty. I gambled on football. Two, you can say, I had no idea that I was even gambling. I was with friends, and I went with them, and I told them not to do it, but they did it. Maybe it looks like I did it. Who knows who did it? Nah, they didn't go with that either. Here's what he did say. He said that he may have misinterpreted a Supreme Court ruling on the legalization of gambling. Marinate with that, please. Josh Shaw said that he read a Supreme Court decision and then misinterpreted it. Well, Josh, I'm a lawyer. I've read many Supreme Court decisions, and I've misinterpreted many of them. Every case has what's called a holding. 
You read through a case, you try to discern what they're talking about, and then you figure out what the holding of the case was. That means what's the rule of the particular case? When the Supreme Court legalized gambling, they weren't actually legalized gambling. They actually were giving the power to the states to decide whether they would legalize gambling. See, that's the interesting thing about the power of the state versus the federal government. That's what the Supreme Court spends a lot of its time figuring out. Will they make a rule that covers all 50 states or will they let each state decide? But are we supposed to believe that Josh Shaw actually went through a Supreme Court case, read through it like it was a Dr. Seuss book, looked at it and said, ah, I've got the interpretation. I can gamble on football. Where exactly did he get that in the case? And how is it possible that his advisors allowed him to use that as an excuse? This is in the Hall of Fame for stupidity. If you're trying to rehabilitate yourself, at least come up with something that there's a chance you will not get laughed out of the building. Can you imagine when he goes before an arbitrator to appeal his suspension and he's got to answer to his initial excuse that for some reason he was confused about the Supreme Court of the United States. Let's start with an easy one, Josh. How many members of the Supreme Court? How many votes does it take? That would be nine, five. My guess is he probably doesn't know that, but most people don't know that. My guess is he was told that he should probably not say, yeah, I'm a gambler and I gamble on sports, and I gambled on football, I was on IR, injured reserve, what's the difference? No, he was told not to be honest. So Josh, here's a word of advice when you're appealing your suspension. Start with honesty and only talk about something that there's a chance you actually have a clue about. And I'm not being prejudicial against you as a football player. This is more a comment on just about everyone in the United States, including those people who Shakespeare says that having them dead at the bottom of the ocean would be a good start. That's all the lawyers. Because trying to figure out what the Supreme Court is saying for us is practically impossible. For you, it's downright insane. Sorry, Josh. You had to get called out on that. You know, when, when we hire a coach, when we have coaches, we, we say to them, your job is to run the game. Your job is to do what we tell you. We're in the front office, and we're going to tell you to manage a game. We're going to set a playbook with you if you're in the NFL, and we're going to monitor what you're doing. So Freddie Kitchens did something this weekend that's caused quite a bit of controversy. He apparently went to a movie with a shirt on that said, quote, Pittsburgh started it. Now, for those of you who are living under a rock or still digesting from the turkey and the stuffing, there was a fight that took place between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns that resulted in an indefinite suspension for Miles Garrett. There was some talk that Mason Rudolph started that fight by trying to take and rip Garrett's helmet off. We talked about it here on Nothing Personal. We looked at the videotape frame by frame. I argued that Rudolph was absolutely culpable in this, but it does not excuse Garrett's behavior. But then Freddie Kitchens decided because the Browns are having such a good season and all the focus has been on the great performance of their team that he would do a little bit of an utz. Do you know what an utz is? It's Yiddish. A little uh, saying Pittsburgh started it. 
It's called BBM is what we used to say when we were with them, when I was with the Marlins for all those years. You want to stay away from BBM. Is that a real thing? It's called bulletin board material. And it is real. I've been in the clubhouse. It used to be an actual bulletin board where the announcements are and where all of the notices are, like you can't gamble on your own sport. And the notice about all the rules, who can be in the clubhouse, who can be in the locker room. It actually used to be a bulletin board. Times have changed, and now it's actually, it went from a bulletin board to a whiteboard. Now it's just simply M squared. Monitor material. Because it's monitors in the clubhouse. So Pittsburgh Steelers got wind of Freddie Kitchen's shirt. They put it on the monitor to quote-unquote give them extra bonus incentive. As though their mediocre season was not bonus incentive enough. The question I have for Freddie Kitchens is when your job is hanging by the thread, basically the width of dental floss, why is it that you feel you want to stir the pot? Tell me the benefit. What we would say to our manager and our coaches and to anyone in the organization, every move you make, I want you to do a cost-benefit analysis. How are you benefiting your team and your organization versus are you costing your team or your organization? Well, if you're a manager or a coach, do you remember the old days there was a coach, maybe you've never heard of him, Tom Landry, the Dallas Cowboys, Dan Reeves, the Denver Broncos, and the New York Giants. They wore jackets, ties, sometimes even fedoras. They didn't wear sweatshirts like Bill Belichick. They didn't look like complete schleppers. They actually dressed nicely. Well, Freddie Kitchens, when he's going to a movie on his personal time, can wear whatever he wants. But when he wears a shirt that says Pittsburgh started it, and I'm the front office of the Browns, I'm immediately calling him in for a tiny little slap on the wrist. And the reason I'm going to do it is that the last thing the Browns need, think about this. When you have Baker Mayfield, you have OBJ, you have Landry, you've got personalities. Freddie Kitchen's job is to get those personalities all pulling in the same direction. His job is to win football games every Sunday, an occasional Thursday, maybe even a Monday. But your job is not to give any sort of life to your opponent. Now, what does he do when he walks in the clubhouse, in the locker room? He makes his players answer for him because that's what happens when a manager or a coach becomes a distraction. And then it lives another day. Baker Mayfield's wife chimed in and got into it with an actual beat reporter for the Cleveland Browns over this shirt. Baker Mayfield was asked about it after the game. Forget the fact that he threw for one touchdown, one interception in a loss that really could for me, the end, right? That's probably it. Season over. Except the question is to Baker Mayfield, one of them, tell me, what'd you think of Freddie's shirt? Freddie was asked about it. His answer, my shirt didn't give up a 40-yard play, touchdown throw. Baker Mayfield said that shirt had nothing to do with it. I thought it was funny. Nothing wrong with it. I am the king of doing things in the media where my players had to answer for it. It's part of what happens when you're in front of the media every day. Some of mine were intentional, some were not intentional. When I said things about Ichiro when he was with the Seattle Mariners and his contract, that's intentional. When I say things that are taken completely out of context, that's not intentional. Like with Daniel Hudson and paternity leave. So what's the general rule that we give to our coaches? Don't do anything without at least 
a 30-second pause, and even a call to your GM. If I'm ever going to wear a shirt with an opposing team's logo describing what was the most controversial play in the NFL this season, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to take a minute, and I'm going to make sure that my team and my owner and my GM know exactly what I'm doing. You think this is taking away his freedom of expression, his freedom of speech? I don't. It's called being in an organization and trying to get victories. Freddie, that shirt was a straight loser, just like your team. Here's a guy who's not a loser today. I hope you're celebrating for him. This is crazy in a negotiation. Greg Schiano is the new head coach of Rutgers. Why is that noteworthy? Well, it's noteworthy to me because of how the negotiation went down. This is textbook perfect negotiation. Greg Schiano walked into Rutgers and said, hey, you want me so badly? I'm going to want eight years. I'm going to want a private plane. I'm going to want A through Z in perks. List them all. That's what you do when you're wanted, is you give a list of everything you want, knowing that you're going to give in on a few things, knowing there's certain provisions that you're willing to walk away for. The key in negotiation is you've got to be willing to walk. How many of you go and negotiate for a street vendor or you negotiate a car price when you're buying a car? What's the only rule you have to have? Be willing to walk out the door. Because if they want it badly enough and they want to sell it to you badly enough, they're going to come after you. But if you walk out the door and then come groveling back, you're finished. Well, Shiano didn't do that. He actually walked away from Rutgers. And then it all started. The governor spoke up. The fans spoke up. The boosters spoke up. They all wanted the athletic director and the organization to step up, the school, to step up and hire Shiano. So what does Shiano do? He lets it all happen publicly. He lets the ground swell build. He doesn't get distracted by the negative publicity from his ask of private plane hours. It would have been very easy for him to say, I didn't want that, or that's normal for a coach to have. He stayed quiet. His last words were, I'm walking out and I'm not coming back. And what that resulted in, if you're good, and he was, is Rutgers went walking right into his lap. He then got the contract he wanted every single provision. So Greg, Shiano, welcome to Rutgers, and congratulations. I hope that you've taught quite a few coaches out there, just none who I would have. I'm glad I'm out of the business. But you've taught a few coaches what to do when you actually have leverage. You play the leverage all the way, not half. Greg Shiano going to Rutgers. Tonight at 8 p.m. is a deadline. It's a deadline that goes under the radar in Major League Baseball, but it shouldn't. It was the most important day of the year for me during my 18 years in baseball. It's called the non-tender deadline. So what does that mean? In baseball, you've got players, and we've talked about this a little bit, and it's a little confusing, so I'm going to break it down very easily for you. And this was a topic brought up by several people in my uh, direct mentions, direct messages on Twitter, at David P. Sampson. How does it work with players and experience? Well, for the first three years of a player's career in baseball, the team gets to decide exactly what the player gets paid. The second three years, you're in something called arbitration, where an arbitrator decides how much money you're going to get paid. And then after six years, you become a free agent. Today is the deadline by which players with 
three to six years of experience have to be offered a contract by their team. What happens is you literally offer them a contract and the amount in it is blank because you don't exactly know what that player is going to get paid. You negotiate with that player and if you can't come to an agreement, you go to an arbitration and the arbitrator decides. In the arbitration, it's like a lawsuit. The team presents why it should pay the player less money. The player presents why he should be getting more money. And the arbitrator then decides one or the other. There's no splitting the baby. Either the team wins or the player wins. And literally what happens is you walk into the arbitration room with a contract for the player's name. And under the amount paid, it's blank. And it gets filled in by the arbitrator at either the team's number or the player number. So why does this deadline matter? Because once you tender a player a contract who is in the arbitration system, that player must be paid his money. You cannot decide to then take him off your roster until you get into spring training. So therefore, teams are deciding how many roster spaces do they need. You only get 40 spaces on your team. But the winter meetings are coming up later this week. Free agency is active. Trade discussions are active. Profar just got traded to the Padres today. Rumored. So you need to leave some space. Because if you go to the winter meetings, let's say with 40 people on your roster, that means you're shooting blanks for the entire offseason. And the only way to get a spot open on your roster is by putting a player through waivers where you risk losing him. So this is the day that teams decide who they're going to tender a contract to. One of the great examples right now is people are speculating, will Jackie Bradley Jr. be tendered by the Boston Red Sox? They're trying to cut payroll. Chaim Bloom, the new chief baseball person, officer of the day guy, is trying to figure out what to do now that J.D. Martinez has opted into his contract, yet the owner said we don't want to pay the luxury tax. Does that mean we're just going to let Jackie Bradley go? Because if you non-tender a player, that's what happens. You lose him for nothing. What you do is, and this is what we did all the time, you tender a player, then you trade him. Because then I get something back for him. So Jackie Bradley will be tendered a contract tonight by the Red Sox. Does that mean everyone up in Red Sox Nation in the middle of winter storm, is it Ezekiel? Are they all saying, thank God, JBJ is back? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Or Jose Urania is another example of a Florida Marlin, Miami Marlin player. He'll be tendered a contract as well. That does not mean he will be on the opening day roster. The decisions were always made from a financial standpoint. If we tender a contract to a player, but we know that player doesn't fit in our payroll, the GM better be able to trade him. Because if he can't, that's how GMs lose their jobs. So presidents and GMs spend a lot of time prior to the deadline tonight at 8, and they figure out the players who are going to be tendered, those who are not going to be tendered, and then what to do once you do tender a player. So in the days to come, there will be much more on the non-tender deadline. One of the things that I love about Nothing Personal is I opened up the Twitter at David P. Sampson, and I said to people, just come. Tell me what you want me to talk about. It can be anything, and I promise you that I will do it, if it's an interesting topic, and if more than one person asks about it. So I got one this weekend that interested me, and I wanted to talk to you about it. 
I was asked to explain what I did right after law school. Because if you, I guess, Google or whatever it is people do or read a bio, people see that I started a newspaper business after law school. Well, I wanted to tell you the story of the newspaper business and why I started it and what happened to it. Let's start back when I was young and I was lucky enough to be able to travel to Europe. The thing about Europe back in the day is you could not get a sports score. How frustrating is it that you were only getting the next day's scores? See, there really was no internet. There was one newspaper called the International Herald Tribune or the USA Today International, but they always carried scores a day late. Shocking for all of you people who are not boomers who are listening to this story, but it's true. And I was a huge New York Knicks fan. And it occurred to me, I want to read the New York Times in Europe same day. It had never been done. I went around Europe and I noticed that the only way to get the Sunday Times was on Wednesday, four days late, which even back then seemed crazy to me. So I thought there's got to be a way to get the Sunday New York Times to Europe same day. So I had to do three things. What's the first thing you have to do? in order to get papers to Europe on the same day? That's not rhetorical, folks, and I know there's no studio audience, but the answer is you have to find a way to get the papers to Europe. To do it, they had to go on a plane. The way I discovered which plane to put them on is I knew from growing up in New York City, for those of you who did, back in the day there were newsstands on every corner. And every Saturday night, the Sunday New York Times would appear at those newsstands. It was called the Bulldog Edition. So I looked to see what is the last flight to Europe out of John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. And it turns out it was Air France Flight 009, which left at 10 p.m. every Saturday night and arrived in Paris at 9 a.m. the next day. So I said, wait a minute, this works perfectly. I can get the Bulldog edition of the New York Times, get them on a plane, and they will be in Paris at 9 a.m. Sunday morning, which means they can be delivered to people in Paris On Sunday, same-day delivery. Epic. Never happened. So what did I do? One Saturday night, I went with a friend. His name is Lyle. And we were in high school. And we went, because we had this idea back when we were very young. And we went to a newsstand. We packed a suitcase with Sunday New York Times. We went to the airport. We checked a bag. Flew over to Paris took the newspapers in a suitcase and went to fancy hotels. And we went to the concierge of a hotel and said, how would you like to give your wealthy clients a newspaper on time? Here it is. This is today's Sunday New York Times. The concierges went crazy. People were so happy to read a paper the same day. This could be a business, I thought. So I went to college and I went to law school. And after law school, I did not get the job I wanted. I always wanted to be a district attorney. I was hoping to be a DA in Manhattan under Robert Morgenthau and Linda Fairstein. But I did not get the job. And that's the beginning of all of the failures that have defined all of my successes. Actually, every reason that I'm successful is because I failed so often. All these overnight success stories, it's not true. There's no such thing. Failure is the best brick and mortar to build a pyramid of success. So I didn't get the job at the district attorney's office, and I said, well, I'm not gonna do anything else. Why don't I try to start a business? 
I'm 22 years old, 25 years old. I was 25 actually after law school. I said, I'm just going to do it. So I did the same thing. I got the Sunday Times out of a newsstand. I flew over to Paris and I tried to make deals with concierges in order to sell them newspapers. Not just 20 at a time. I wanted to do in the hundreds. But here's the problem with my business idea. I couldn't check that many bags. And I couldn't fit all the papers in a taxi. So I had to find a way to get the New York Times to deliver me newspapers, not to a newsstand in the city, but to deliver newspapers to John F. Kennedy so they could be put on the plane as cargo. Here's the problem. I couldn't get the New York Times to return a letter or a call. There was no email back then. This was just me sending a typewritten letter saying, here's my name and here's my idea. Never got a response. But I would not take no for an answer. Persistence is the adjective that is most widely used to describe me. Well, for those people who actually know me, if you don't know me, there's other words that are used. But I found a way to think about how do I get the New York Times to answer? So I took a letter with me to the building, the New York Times building in New York City, and I tried to get in to see the publisher, Arthur Salzberger Jr., except no one would see me. I couldn't get through the door, and I was despondent but I didn't give up. And it just so happens when I was there, I was noticing that there were bike messengers. This is a thing before email, actual messengers on bikes delivering actual letters to actual people. So what did I do? I went home, I got out of my jacket and tie, and I got dressed as a bike messenger. And I took the letter back to the New York Times building, and I found someone in the mailroom saying, please deliver this letter to Arthur Salzberger Jr. I'm going to lose my job as a bike messenger if you don't do it. And I gave the letter and I left. The next day, I got a call from the head of circulation of the New York Times. Not the bike messenger. He didn't get the call. It was the executive, the 25-year-old guy working alone, trying to find a way to sell newspapers in Europe. So I did a deal with the New York Times and I got papers brought to the airport, flown into Paris. But I wasn't satisfied with Paris. I knew that Paris is like Memphis for FedEx. And I knew that flights leave from Paris all over Europe that still get there on Sunday. So I went to different cities and spent weeks at a time building distribution networks and having papers delivered, same day delivery of the Sunday New York Times. And the business was great, selling them by the thousands. And then something strange happened. The internet was born. I didn't think anything of it. Who would not want to read a Sunday New York Times by hand? Who wouldn't want the ink on their fingers? If you don't know about New York Times ink on your fingers, then I feel badly for you. Pick up a real paper, not to read it, just to get the ink on it, then go back to your computer. But I thought, hey, No one is going to read an electronic version of a newspaper. So I thought nothing. I kept going. But two things happened that changed my mind. One was a murder. And one was the fact that it turns out the Internet wasn't going to go away. Let's start with the murder. So who would be unhappy? Anytime you start a business, you have to think about whose business are you taking away? It turns out that by getting the New York Times to Europe on Sunday, I was making a lot of people unhappy who were getting paid a lot of money to deliver the New York Times on Wednesday. I didn't care. I was underselling them and outperforming them. 
but it turns out that they were very unhappy about it. So I would do a joint venture partnership with local delivery companies in every city, and I had a deal in London, getting the newspapers to every hotel and also to expats, which are Americans living in London who loved getting the New York Times delivered. I became basically a newspaper delivery boy. Until one day I got a call from Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard is like the police in London that my joint venture partner in London had been murdered and my name was on his desk. So I was not a person of interest in the murder, but someone who needed to be interviewed by Scotland Yard to try to understand why a person in the newspaper delivery business would be murdered. This is no shock to you, but the delivery business can sometimes be manned by some less than desirable extras from Goodfellas. Sometimes not. But in this case, there was some concern that that was an issue. I had to get a lawyer. I spent several hours dealing with Scotland Yard, and it turns out that he was murdered by an ex-employee. But it was enough that it got me a little scared because I was getting some hints along the way that there were some very important people very angry about my newspaper business called News Travels Fast. And then the second thing happened. I was on a plane one day, flying to Europe, and someone who's smarter than I, working at Morgan Stanley, an investment bank, said to me, you know, this internet thing, it's not going away anytime soon. And I said to myself, well, I better bet on him knowing the future more than me, more than I, excuse me. So just like that, I ended up leaving the newspaper business and joining Morgan Stanley. And for Morgan Stanley is how I got into baseball. So the moral of the News Travels Fast story is that businesses can be a lot of fun. They can be very difficult to build. But if you have persistence and you know when to hold them and you know when to fold them, you can be extraordinarily successful. I appreciate the fact that you wanted to talk to Samson. That's the brief version of how News Travels Fast started and how News Travels Fast ended. To this day, to this day, I look at that period of my life as one of the great learning moments that helped me throughout my career and continue to help me as I learned how to get people to say yes who all they ever want to do is say no. Because no in business is just an impediment on the way to yes. Well, I did it this weekend, folks. I had to. 219 minutes of my life gone. Like that. Yes, I downloaded The Irishman, and yes, I watched it. 175 million dollar budget, all to make Robert De Niro look like he's 30, but walk like he's 80. Joe Pesci to look like he's 40, but to act like he's 90. And Al Pacino to pretend he's Jim Ahafa at all ages. They used a new technique of de-aging like we saw in the curious case of Benjamin Button, which is one of my top all-time movies. The Irishman was, I described it on Twitter at David P. Sampson as meh, because that's really what it was. It is not worth your time. Now, why are people saying it was so good? Because they're living in days of yesteryear. Is that an expression? Days of yesteryear? They love Martin Scorsese. 
They believed that Goodfellas was one of the greatest movies ever, which it was. Casino, which it was. They thought this was part three, like Godfather part three. It turns out this was a love project, and I cannot figure out for the life of me how this got greenlighted until I read about it and found out that a studio had approved it, but then when the budget got too big, they, they basically turned it down, and then Netflix picked it up. So Netflix, from all of our $14 a month, they now are creating original content, which you know. Now they're a movie studio. They're actually going to be competing for Oscars. But the rules of the Oscars state that you have to have a release in an actual movie theater. So many of these Netflix movies get released for a day in a theater, and then they're available for streaming on Netflix. Do I suggest that you watch The Irishman? No. If you've got 219 minutes to spare, read some Supreme Court decisions, or maybe watch Goodfellas, but stay away from The Irishman. I read something else this weekend. This is too long a story for today, but I'm going to tell part of it. Bobby Valentine may be the single worst manager in the history of professional baseball. I'm going to throw it out there. Yes, I am, Bobby. Do you know how close we came to hiring you? And do you know then we turned you down because on a phone call with your laundry list of of basically demands. Now, Greg Schiano got away with it with Rutgers. Why didn't you get away with it? Because you're not nearly as good as Greg Schiano is at coaching. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to think about what exactly you did in your managerial career that gave you the ability to think that you could get anything you wanted. Oh, I know. Yes, that's right. You thought no matter what, the owner of the Marlins was going to hire you. But you went too far. But now you're back, and you are giving advice to Carlos Beltran. And your advice was spectacular. I want to read it, because I think I have it. I'm pulling for Beltran, you said. I hope he can get the end of the bullpen together and maybe even get Suspedis to play a little and put that group together offensively so they can be consistent to go with that pitching and it's lights out. Hey, Carlos Beltran, I got a word of advice for you, my man. Whatever Bobby says, sort of do the opposite, pretend it's opposite day. That really sounds like general manager advice, which is exactly why Bobby was not popular as a manager. A, his clubhouse didn't respect him. But on top of that, B, he wanted to make every personnel move. This is an example of that. Carlos, if you're trying to ingratiate yourself with the Mets organization, with the Wilpons, and with your GM, Brody Van Wagenen, don't go in demanding bullpen help. Don't start spreading rumors that the Mets are going to trade for Josh Hader. That's a rumor that came out today. Just because Brody Van Wagenen had Hader as a player before he became a GM. Brody Van Wagenen, of course, was an agent, as you know. That's the GM's job. Carlos, stick to managing. And the key to managing is managing whoever the players are who are given to you by your general manager. Don't make demands for certain players. Ozzie Guillen, for all of his failings as a manager... Joe Girardi, for all of his failings, for me as a manager, they, all, they said the same thing to me. You give me the 25 guys, and I'll make it work. They got that from the Jack McKeon School of Managing. Carlos, if you were smart, you'd do the same. 
you don't go in and say we got to get the bullpen fixed. It's your job to take the players and make them better. Could Edwin Diaz rebound? Maybe. Can you survive with Lugo in the rotation instead of Wheeler? Maybe. Is there a chance that Robinson Cano cannot get suspended for steroids and actually be a productive player? Nah, doubtful. So, Carlos, don't listen to Bobby. Bobby, stop giving advice. You know, this is the time of year when executives are, are, are nameless, and it always made me crazy. Sources were a major problem for me when I was with the Marlins. We had a bunch of leaks in the organization. I never understood. Put your name to something. If you're going to put something out there, I want to see your name. If you're going to give an opinion or a take, put your name to it. Be a man. Be a woman. Don't hide behind, oh, a nameless executive or an anonymous because he's not allowed to discuss the issue publicly. That's the famous expression used now. The source requested anonymity because he's not permitted to speak publicly on the issue. What a bunch of horse hockey. You're allowed to speak on an issue, but speak on an issue that you know about. Yesterday, a nameless executive, faceless executive, wimpy, wussy executive, said Zach Wheeler is going to get $100 million over five years. Now, maybe it's possible he read all the predictions that are out there, including some from this very network, saying that Zach Wheeler could be a $100 million man. He's not. Here's who Zach Wheeler is. He's a former Tommy John, where the chances are that a second Tommy John is more likely than for someone who's never had a Tommy John. In addition, he's someone who's a solid middle-of-the-rotation pitcher. If you're a team looking to add pitching, and there's about 30 teams this season looking to add pitching, why would you give $20 million to Zach Wheeler when you can call up one of your young guys and get the same exact production? Is it because you need names? That is famous owner speak. You want a name guy. You want to have that moment of free agency where you get to be on the podium at the winter meetings and say, yes, pound your chest. We signed a free agent to $100 million. I would know because I've pounded my chest. I pounded it so much that I thought that I was this amazing Avenger. It turns out I was a tiny nothing spending his time trying to make headlines by signing bad contracts. Zach Wheeler's not a $100 million man, and any team who thinks so is a team who is simply desperate. And the nameless exec, is he an exec for an agency? Because why would any team have an executive who would ever talk about a player making more money than he deserves to get? I want you to name yourself and say Zach Wheeler is a two-year guy at $13 million a year, and that's it. Let's see how the Players' Union responds to that. Makes me laugh, the whole thing. I laugh at all these. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm speechless right now because it, it uh, things happen during the course of every day. And I try to explain them to you because I want you to learn what I've learned over, it took me 18 years. One of the things that's going on in Boston right now, big news yesterday. Chris Sale has been cleared to throw. Let me hear it, Red Sox Nation. Chris Sale cleared to throw. Guess what that means? Nothing. Literally nothing. Chris Sale had what's called the PRP injection. 
a platelet-rich protein injection. I call it PRP. I'm not one for learning what acronyms are. I can't even pronounce regular names, according to my producer, Matthew Coca. But suffice it to say that Chris Sale missed the last half of the season, as you remember, the last chunk of the season, and he got what's called the PRP in his elbow. Then he went to see the doctor of doom, Dr. James Andrews. Very good doctor, great surgeon. I always call him the doctor of doom because when you send a player to see him in either Jacksonville or Mobile, you, and it depends where he is at the time, the doctor that is, you go to him. Dr. James Andrews does not come to you. You go to him. But when you do go to him, you generally leave with a V-shaped scar on your elbow because that's where you go to get your Tommy John done. So Chris Sale went to get a checkup, and Chris Sale was told by Dr. James Andrews, hey, go ahead, you can start a throwing program. So when I'm planning to put together my team this year, and I'm the Red Sox, and I'm figuring out how I'm going to win and stay under the luxury tax, and I'm counting on Chris Sale to be my ace with David Price, here's the problem. Every player who gets a PRP always gets cleared to throw. It's once they start throwing and get the pain again, then they go get the Tommy John. That is what is not mentioned ever by Dr. Doom, is that we're going to be conservative. I never like that. I want to be aggressive because right now, if Chris Sale has the Tommy John early, then he would be recovered faster. You're going to miss 12 to 18 months. Why waste the three months of the offseason? He was just signed to that huge extension, so the Red Sox, under all scenarios, want him to pitch. But is it worth it to have a pitcher pitch? And this was the fight I had all the time with our baseball people. Is it worth it to have a pitcher pitch who is not who you thought he was? Forget the fact that you're paying him so much. But Chris Sale wasn't Chris Sale. We saw that all season. His velocity was down. His arm slot had changed. These are sure signs of injury. Then they shut him down. But now everyone is thrilled to death that he can start throwing. Well, you heard it here first. It's not my way to see, but you did hear it here first. Him being clear to throw means denada. The question is, does he have an opportunity to actually avoid surgery? And when pitchers are cleared to throw during the offseason, they don't ramp up until after the new year. He'll do some long toss, but he's not going to test it off a mound right now. You're not going to know anything about whether or not he's ready to pitch. It's going to be four to six weeks more. And by that time, the Red Sox have to have their entire offseason planned. The decisions that are made by the team right now, it will impact them. And remember what we said last year about that sale extension? Unnecessary brutally overpaid, and that's when he was actually performing. But now it's the opposite. Now he's hurt and wasn't performing when he was healthy. So James Andrews, thanks for the big epiphany on Chris Sale and his ability to throw. One of my great things I also like doing, it's so much fun to do the pick of the day. So my pick of the day is I really try to talk to all the gamblers out there. And my goal for you is I need you to learn when to fade me and when to listen to me and go with me. Because there's some picks that definitely require a fade and some picks that don't. My pick tonight is one that I spent a lot of time on because this is a huge game. The Monday night game. The reason I love picking the Monday night game, and I'm always going to do it for you on Monday nights, is that 
We're all going to be watching the game. I acknowledge it. I'm watching the Seahawks play the Twins. Twins, that's funny. The Seahawks play the Vikings. And why is Russell Wilson only giving two and a half? Yes, he's giving two and a half over Cousins. That, to me, is an absolute mistake in value. Given that the Niners lost, given the opening right now across the league with the Patriots having lost their second game, the Ravens the number one team in the AFC, the NFC up for grabs, the Packers looked fine against the Giants, but who wouldn't? My child's peewee team would look good against the Giants at this point. Sorry, Will, you know who you are. But I'm going Seahawks. I'm going big. This is a five-star play. Am I allowed to say that? Are you allowed to know that Kirk Cousins is 0-7 on Monday Night Football? Are you allowed to know that Kirk Cousins gets outplayed and that Russell Wilson is the most clutch quarterback we've seen? Is that up for debate? He's certainly in the top three. I don't want to start a debate here in the studio. But he is a guy, if you need to win a game and you need a field goal to win, I want him at two and a half points. You got yourself a win. So wait to see is a, is a concept. I love wait to see because I'm going to tell you when I get things wrong. And boy, did I get one wrong. I told you that it would take zero wins to get the number one pick in the NFL draft. I think that was my first wait to see on nothing personal. Well, now that the Bengals won a game, how is it possible the Jets set a record? Do you know that? The Jets have lost this year to two teams who were 0-7 or worse. That's never happened before in the history of the National Football League. Not like this year. I'm talking the history of the whole league. Never happened. Well, the Jets found a way to do it. The Bengals won, and it cost me a wait to see. I told you to wait. We waited. I told you to see, and we saw. I guess a one-team, one-victory team is going to win. But my wait to see today is cool. James Harden scored 60 and three quarters. His career high is 61. He needed 62. His coach didn't realize. I would have left him in, give him his career high, Wait to see. James Harden will get his career high and will end up being known as one of the top three offensive players in the history of the association. James Harden, you're getting 62. And Bobby, if you were watching, Josh Shaw, if you're reading the Supreme Court rulings right now and not listening to this podcast or watching me on YouTube, CBS, or following me or rating me, I just got to tell you, this whole show was just business. It's nothing personal. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.